I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackEnd and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode was about the intersection of serverless and digital twinning. And we really had a fantastic conversation about how these two concepts are really tightly intermingled. And we threw out the idea that I was going to have a central single serverless hub managing everything. And the idea that we would actually have a mesh of serverless interconnected event processing, stream processing systems that were much more function dependent uh, really opens up a lot of interesting discussion and possibility both to add new systems, but also discuss how to manage all of this meshed uh, serverless subscription modeling eventing um, and digital twinning is a big part of the answer that we were discussing. A fantastic discussion, and I know you will enjoy it. Truly floundering and, and you know, leaking money on any number of different things, trying to understand how to apply IoT and digital twins. And... Um, there are a number of, there certainly are a number of places where you can you know, step on landmines in this. And I think I heard you just as I logged in, um, both you and Joanne making the point that um, not having a rather complete set of sources and those sources need to be to the degree possible, pretty uniform is a very, very big, big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's uh, you got to have good data and you, you have to have good, absolutely crystal clear, good data. And it has to be data that you have confidence in. Yeah. Um, uh, the reason I was the reason I was asking about kind of the layer of abstraction that you're you're using at this point or conceptual is whether procurement and process gets thrown into this as well mm -hmm. simply being able to you know run the most sustainable data center for some you know on some some basis doesn't often provide you with the direction regarding its implementation and its ongoing maintenance. And that's a, that's a big, that's a big factor that has to be incorporated. Well, I think, you know, to your point, Rich, one of the, and I'm sorry, Don, if I jumped, jumped in in front of you, one of the, one of the reasons I'm so um, big on this technology um, is because I see it as, the blank canvas on which you can reverse engineer your defined goal, whether that's power consumption or power distribution or zero carbon footprint or, uh, you know, any of the permutations and combinations of variables that you would have in a data center from what machine is on board, what machine is being ordered to its security level, et cetera. If you start with something that already exists and you can feed the data into it, you can not only highlight the points where you want to be collecting other data that you don't have right now, which leads to a more sustainable outcome, but also break it all the way down to the um, situation of tactics, chunk it into, into manageable gate, you know, um, stage gates or timelines, however you want to do that, because whatever you're absorbing into the twin, it's a bi-directional flow, right? I mean, the data is your starting point. You can then go and model that with analytics or using the twin itself to talk about predictive analytics and maintenance and outages and, you know, uh, peak times for electric use, peak times for, um, uh, fresh air, life safety systems, the whole nine yards of it. And I'm seeing this coming from so many different points, not only from the enterprise point of view, but even now for um, uh, building codes changing, right? The UK happens to lead in that, but Canada is doing a lot in that, in that vein as well, in terms of 
what you want to have put into the build of the building, whether it's life safety or zero carbon, the materials, what does that room look like? How is it as a part of a building, not just the data center by itself? And then digital twinning that that out so that you can build models. Is that the is that where we're where you're going? Yeah. Well, if you digital twin from the highest level of abstraction and work it backwards, reverse engineer it, you would want to have your twin not only look at the room and all of the um, accoutrements in that room, power, cooling, machines, uh, efficacy, workloads, uh, all of that kind of data that clearly is what Don is talking about, but also how does that room fit in that building and what is the impact to the building and the people in that building as well, sure. right? I mean, you could literally go from the top all the way down and it's not an analysis paralysis kind of exercise because the building itself, its structure is finite. How it will be you know, um, enhanced or changed over a period of time will be based on cost. One right. of the What's the biggest cost to upgrade biggest. overall HVAC within the entire building or power distribution or whatever, whatever. You, you can play that game of what if. And in my mind, the, the twin itself becomes a very powerful tool for the data pipelines that Rob speaks of, whether bare metal is better than something else that might come down the pike, how 5G is going to impact that. So it becomes a, a big holistic view. And then you can pick and choose the chunks based on the parameters and needs according to the timeline that's been set out or what the actual objectives are. Just my two cents. Yeah. I like what you're saying. The biggest mistake that I encountered and (laughs) fought a losing battle to try and get attention is that what was coming down from the executive suite with regard to digital twinning was almost immediately trying to make it prescriptive as opposed to descriptive, then predictive, and then prescriptive. They wanted almost immediately to use the digital twin as a controlling kind of closed loop, you know, automating automating the entire the entirety of the um estate that it was taking a look at and um they didn't go through the first two anywhere near as sufficiently as they should have well you know it's it's funny because when i was doing my paper for apex um i took a look at what was coming out of academia, but also what was coming out of the industry. And there's a huge disparity between, and and it's weird because the academics themselves are saying, you know, this is getting so much airplay out there. Uh, Do people not understand that in some ways the work that's being done needs um, high levels of canonical attributes that are common. You need to look at the variances of what's being measured in each in each in each digital twin. Like you know, the variability of sensors and actuators and and controls and everything that's going into it. You have to really be careful that you're not you know uh, that uh, you're not creating the um, sort of uh, library or references that are not going to be shared or or interpreted the same way. There has to be some mathematics behind it. And I I looked at it from the point of view of, yes, you do need to have the mathematics behind it, but you also have to have the goals in the real world outside of academia that these need to accomplish. So your hierarchies, your canonics, your mathematics, all of that has to be pretty much taken from industry and the industry for which you're creating the digital twin. Because not all industries, not all sectors of manufacturing, for example, will use the same uh, parameters that they want to measure in their data center. Some of it could be sensors on a line. A bank is going to look at it from a completely different point of view. So come to some neutrality. There is also now a digital twin consortium, by the way, 
which I have a different kind of opinion about. But but that being said, um, the company that I'm thinking of, actually, there are two. Uh, one of them in particular is big on the zero footprint, zero carbon. So that probably would be the most likely. And they have the broadest spectrum of um, uh, integration and uh, data ETL, if you want, than most of the others do. And that to me would be important. It, it's interesting because I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm thinking about the work that we're doing, which functionally is building digital twins, right? You have to have a control mechanism for, for data center components. Um, but we're not doing it with any thought of integrating it into a broader uh, modeling system. And I'm, what I'm, because right, our, our goal is control. It's not, it's not analysis right. from that perspective. Um, but if yeah, go ahead. Sorry, the only the only question that comes to my mind immediately is, I don't view this on a as a control plane or a data plane. I view this as an objective, an outcome plane. Right? What are you trying to achieve by doing this? Because if you don't take that perspective, those models do become very siloed. I understand the. There, there's also amongst clients anyway, this view that the digital twin becomes your control tower. And that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to inform. Its purpose is to give you the insight you need to then adjust your control plane or your data plane. Well, and it's, I mean, it's a, lo a lot of the way we think of the designs is to actually be influenced by exactly that, right? That you would, the, the, a lot of what we're building is we're collecting data or adding data, but our, this to me is a single truth, a uh, single point of truth question. And I actually think we're, we're related. I haven't put up the, um, the, the chart where the topic for today is serverless uh, point two, which I think we're actually talking through um, in its own interesting way. Um, yeah. Is the digital, digital twin and serverless, I think are actually very well linked topic. But when, when we build, one of the things that we've done that I found I found serves us very well over time, and and I think is a digital twin related concept is we are very flexible about source of truth. So when when we build, we didn't build walls on our database. So our our models and our source of truth are designed to be updated external to the system because that's what we expect to happen. And they're they're designed to be incrementally updated, and they're designed to be easily accessible as models external to us. So rather, like when I, when I think about a lot of the operations tools that that we interact with, they have no concept of getting data from an external source as part of their normal process, or sending data to an external source as part of their normal process. They they're not designed to enable that. So they're 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 very siloed tools. And their source of truth is very rigid. And so if, if something changes in their model outside of their control, they usually freak out. Um, and our, our whole strategy uh, was different because we expect things to be influenced or changed or, or happen over time. So maybe we're closer to a digital twin. When I think about it, we're end up, we end up being closer to a digital twin model the way you're describing it me. Um, yeah, I think so. And, and to me, you know, the the flexibility and scopelessness or boundarylessness mm -hmm. of the digital twin actually bodes well for principles like interconnectedness, which is basically the paradigm of all of Industry 4 and the Fourth Industrial Revolution kind of stuff. And where, you know, at the very back of it is what you're describing. Right. And from what Don is talking about in that environment of the large data center, I see that as as both the beginning and the end. The beginning is to get it to be the most sustainable at the, you know, and most valuable to the customer with the lowest amount of cost associated, clearly. 
But that being said, at the back of it, all the data that's being recorded it can definitely be used to set an industry standard. This, these are the main things. This is why it's done this way. And you allow for uh, future proofing of the technology by doing that. So I, I may see it more loosely than you do, Rob, but I think it fits both, you know, um, forthcoming security issues to be addressed, whether that's on hardware or software, uh, Web3, decentralization, uh, more edge, more, you know, um, changes to various types of technology. It becomes the, in, in my view, the plane with which you collaborate. Not, I don't mean collaboration outside the organization, but which all the variables and factors come together in a collaborative way that you can assess, define, predict, and then deliver more value. Sorry, that was a lie. No, it's, it was. I, it's just how my brain works. No, no need to apologize. I, I, I think that this is real, um, and important. So, do you want to try and pivot that into this uh, the discussion about serverless and and how we actually use like? So, so, let me let me think about the way I see what we're what we're describing, and this is a theme for us, which is data centers are composed of, of a lot of components, right? This, this, um, I, I love the interconnectedness of, um, of the systems, but there's not going to be a system. It's all going to be interconnected pieces, and, right? Digital yeah, twins are going to model them. And, and those systems are going to be connected together. This to me is where serverless is the reality of what we're doing. How, you know, we, how do we connect together all of these disparate systems into a useful way. Is, is that mean that there's, you know, that we're going to have a big serverless hub? Really what right? Lambda started the way I see it um, as a way to say, oh, we've got all these services in AWS. Let's have a way to connect something that happened in service one to something that happened in service two. Uh, and it was really just this big event event engine system, it strikes me that we're, we're not going to have a single system that does all this stuff. We're going to have to have an event system that's open and, and vendor neutral. Seems like one step beyond what you were just saying. Well, you know, if you take, if you take composability and yeah. you add interconnectedness, you're basically describing, you just described what those two concepts mean. Right. Yeah. You can compose whatever you need, whenever you need it, as long as it can be interconnected in the ways you need it to be. That allows for the flexibility that would be needed overall and the future proofing. Now, interconnectedness is basically a concept that was espoused by Jack Welsh. It was espoused mm -hmm. through the original treaties of Industry 4, um, meaning that the Equipment, regardless of what kind of equipment it is, was not just processing data. It was actually into interacting with the data and telling it what to do, whether that's through routing or through another mechanism. It's um, I have a piece on interconnectedness that I'm happy to share um, because to me it's one of the forward-thinking ideas that has been around for a long time, but not received the kind of attention it should have. You know, when you hear words like boundaryless business or uh, the flow of data between a customer and a supplier or a manufacturer and a consumer, that's what boundaryless business is based on is the idea that it has to go, it has to be interconnected. So to me, serverless gives the fl flexibility that you need for boundaryless and interconnectedness. And that's why serverless to me makes sense. Yeah. Does that, does that end up meaning that we're going to 
that have to be a single, and maybe this is one of the, I hadn't thought about this, but I've always assumed that we would end up with a serverless hub or an event message bus hub in the center of all this stuff. Um, but maybe you don't, you don't have to have a single central hub here. You don't. Why would you? Think about the way blockchain works yeah. or Web3 for decentralized. You're never going to have that central hub anymore. You're going to have a single version of truth across different circumstances. So you may have multiple single versions of truth. <laughs> That's scary. Well, no, because each would be specific to how to its use case. Oh, okay. So they're not conflicting sources of truth. They're they're in they're parallel streams. Okay. Yeah, the, but the idea. So I mean, if I carry that out, then each product is going to end up with its own message bus or eventing system, and we're just going to plug that. You know. So I guess when I, when I think of Give the me way, a for this, instance. Yeah, I mean, so if I was at, well, you know, you're much more in factory, so I'll, I'm going to use factories as an example, but cautiously. But, yes, but I am I, a widget. If, if I was building um, a system to interact with an assembly line or, a, you know, factory floor, and I had 10 vendors of different systems, right? So I have vision systems, the quality systems, and the control set, right? All, so all of those pieces, and then the environmentals for the factory, even the time cards and and you know uh, personnel management pieces um and safety like, like there's layers of systems all individual yeah. vendors right each one what if each one had a good api knock on wood right they should then i could have an event processing system where i would glue information between those systems together and i could say you know what my vision system is going to do quality assurance on this part of the line, and then I need if if it detects defect rates, I need it to generate events that I can send into my upstream control system. Um, try it this way. Okay. The event was out of spec. A defect was detected. That's your event. Okay. Now, how would you play out the same scenario? To me, event-driven means something just happened where something is being triggered. You're not looking for the event. The event is the issue that you're trying to resolve. So if the event is the issue in, um, uh, in the case of the flow, then the event would trigger every single version of truth for every impact that that event had. So let's say, you know, a box fell off to a conveyor belt and every hundred boxes, a box falls off. Well, okay. So the first place you're going to look um, is at the conveyor belt, right? Is it, is it unbalanced? Is it moving too quickly? Is it whatever? What impact does that then have on everything else? So it would be the sensors would be interconnected to MES to ERP, to other mm -hmm. sensors on the line looking at weight or palletization, uh, visual inspection, et cetera. That one event is the trigger. It then, then like it's a one to many and each of the many's is tied to a system, which would then give you the insight to say, the conveyor belt is only doing this because the weight of that of x package that comes through the line let's say every hundredth package is sure. too heavy and it's tilting the one ro uh, roller on the line that's causing the package to fall do you see what i'm saying I so do. from that kind of perspective but, go ahead uh, i mean what you're talking about is is analysis from that i guess and i you know i could see a digital twin sort of helping you build the whole model of the system and feed data back but the the 
flow of, hey, this is actually going on at the moment. How, you know, how do we connect all these disparate systems together? Is, or do, do, they, do they need a standard to be connected together in a reliable way to give you that type of analysis? Because that meta-analysis is critical, but today I, 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 I don't see systems that connect it together that well. Well, I would tell you that in large organizations where there are multitudes of factories owned by each company, yeah. 25, 30, 10, 15, it doesn't matter. The, the MES, ERP, uh, shop floor systems of any kind, um, PLM, all the CAD, all the 3PL warehousing distribution, they are already connected. Okay. That's why, I mean, you know, no horns being blown here, but part of the reason that I see things the way I do is because after 30 years of working with that kind of level of integration and interconnection, you sort of get to a point where you go, I'm not going to make API calls to each individual system. That's dumb. Right. I'm going to find the one way to get the data populated into each place or have it be analyzed in regard to the impact it will drive on those systems and the outcomes that will result. So what, what I'm hearing you say is the idea that I'm going to have an undifferentiated sensor and drop it into a system and then put an event, event stream on it is it's maybe great IT thinking, but it's not realistic factory building or system building. Um, Actually, it is not out of scope for factories to have that because that one sensor or actuator may be something that cannot be, pardon the expression, but grepped from a standard PLC or a machine that, that has you know, proprietary right. information that it keeps that you can't get access to. So and, and that's and so the the scenario of I just brought in these new sensors and I threw them threw them to do some analysis and my I'm not going to update my ladder logic or my my PLC programming because it's you know locked in a vendor or I don't want to run the risk of changing it but I do want to do you know build that into my system yeah um so that's real all right which makes sense to me. Uh, especially like bolt-on visual systems. There's all sorts of easy things that you could do that would it would never built into the control systems today or right, even that's why, imagined. Yeah, that's why I'm sort of suggesting the idea of okay. another plane. And if you think about that ice metaphor that I used, you know, that integrated composable engineering, it's because of that. So you, we're getting is, to the point that, where, yeah, okay. go ahead. I was going to say in that case, the, it, it still seems to me like you're, you're going to end up with the data hub or, you know, some event hub in your, in your system where you're going to pull all those things back into that standard, a standard piece. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something from that. It just—it seems like you'd want that. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Starbeats uh, adding as a, as a adding in as a question. Uh, I'm talking about standards, and Joanne's talking about ops. I don't know. I'm not sure that I quite understand that, but okay. Yeah, uh, Starbeat. There you go. You should be able to come in and ask your question live. Because, because from my perspective, I'm I'm trying to think of the systems that you know that we have all these islands of automation, and that I, I see the events, the serverless systems, as ways to interconnect them or add in, you know, analysis capabilities into their their events, their data streams, and then take action on them in decoupled ways. There's no reason that you couldn't do both. Would would you? I mean, but I but 
from what you said earlier, I could easily see my MES system having its own event. And I guess this is what we're going to see, having its own event system where you would be like, all right, I need a way to take MES events and process them and take actions. That's captive inside that application stack. Um, I've sort of expected those would, you get more value by having an external event processing system that would replace the MES, like not use the MES systems one, but allow you to move it outside of that in case there wasn't data considered in the MES system. Well, I think that's where the twin comes in. Hmm. Okay. You could leverage the twin to do exactly that. Because MES does more than just, um, I mean, it's the E is not event, it's execution. Right. Now, you could say execution is an event, and we could go off into an Alice in Wonderland rattle about that, but there's no point. Um, I, to me, the, the twin, and that's why I'm, again, bringing this, you have a control plane, you have a, a data plane into something higher that has another level of plane, whichever term we, we, we tend to refer to it as. But I see that you could do both. And serverless does give you that capability because, yes, that's about composability. So, Sarbeet, ask, ask your question because I'm not getting it. No, I was, I was thinking that what Rob was getting to was the standards needed to send the data back and forth to a common entity, let's say. You know, because we used to have ESPs in the olden days, right? And what we don't have right now these days in cloud is ESP equivalent of cloud, if you will. And, and I think Rob was talking about the standards around sending the data to this common um, platform, if you will. And then what you were talking about was the, the what is it PubSub? Like, like uh, is it a, a, a fault? like trying to talk to something or something trying to watch something happening. So you're talking about operations of stuff, right? So that's what I was saying, actually. It was not a question, actually. You kind of, um, my two cents, that those are two different things. And I think we do need standards for data exchange as well as um, at some level, how we process that data like ESP kind of stuff. So ESP is, I, I see ESP separate from uh, standards around data exchange. Like we have SIM model, right? In CMDB world, right? We have a SIM model. We have predefined um, attributes of servers and memory modules and whatnot. And we exchange data uh, between systems and or send data to systems and analyze it by using that model. So I think we need something like that um, to that effect. And it doesn't matter what domain it is. It can be IT ops and bringing in this um, being green and all that stuff, or it can be a factory floor. So I think every domain has their own challenges of that, defining the data standards, like in in B2B e-commerce, there's Rosetta Net and there was EDI. Um, we need we need to have more um, kind of standards around data exchanges for the newer paradigms, which are how to, how you can keep your stuff green. Right? <laughs> for example, we were talking about that earlier, right? Yeah. So that's well, what I was trying to get to. With respect, I mean, there's a multitude of protocols and standards that do exist in in factory floors. I mean, you have 16 different protocols that are common across equipment, and you have MQTT and all the variations of MQ, whether it's Hive MQ or Rabbit MQ or whatever, and that that allows you to ETL things into a common lingua franca based on your Rosetta Net reference. Um, that being said, though, it's not about how the data is delivered. We were talking about 
using digital twins as a bidirectional data flow for analysis purposes, whether it's you're measuring temperature of a data center or electricity or you know something concrete, no pun intended, like that. But when Rob took it the other direction, events on a factory floor in real time is ops. You are 100% correct. But the prediction of those events or having uh, even a malware packet come in through 5G, that's an event that should trigger a number of other things to happen, right, in back office systems, warnings, alerts, whatever, as well as the packet stream itself. So from a composability point of view of serverless, I see that the ETL and the bus that you're describing, um, which were common way back when, aren't necessarily needed as much. I would see that bus becoming more like a blockchain and your, your mm-hmm. you know, um, single version of truth is, is immutable within the chain. The information is immutable within the chain. I can see serverless being, okay, whatever API I choose to use, I can use it, but that API has to somehow be immutable as well. I don't think the problem was a mutability problem earlier, even uh, even today. It's it, it is a problem in some domains like payments and stuff like that, uh, where you just need a single you know source of truth for that data. For for most of these industrial use cases, I think that was not the problem. The problem was how do we exchange the data and and what do we do with that data and then back backing up a little bit i think i was listening to your discussion early on it, it can t- be tied into the serverless sort of discussion but the, the the main thing first thing to do for anybody who wants to sort of jump into this world of digital twins is i think they have to build the inroads right so this is how i see it as a developer i'm a developer or hard i mean i code and stuff like that less of that now but like that's how i think so you have to develop the inroads the the you need to have the facility to send the data first first of all then after that you can say okay i'm going to send two um, attributes like simple stuff you know kind of experimentation wise and just let's start let's get started with it let's say that the the heat of cpu is being sent or heat of a machine or whatever the temperature what you just pick two attributes and then then you can add on to it and then as you add more and more in your digital twin on the other side you can start either monitoring just kind of read only stuff like monitoring right or managing even like that means you can control the machine which is sending you that stuff so I think that that kind of sort of framing to solving these problems is, is, is a good way to think. And I think serverless plays a huge role in that because it serverless to me is APIification of, you know, a lot of systems. That's how I see it. Um, it it's um, I, I usually say it's the, the one of the best ways to do the data democratization because it lets you put API around almost anything, the way it is constructed right now. Now, I'll stop there. I can go into all kind of tangents and have a history of doing that. (laughs) Hmm. I, I, it definitely, in some ways, what you described to me is not that different than a, than a bus, you know, a, a, the system bus or an enterprise bus for these. Um, but maybe this is what we're really talking about is, you know, it's a le- it's a less connected way to exchange data back to it. Um, but some are of we it, trying to get the, rid of the bus? Are we trying to get rid of the old paradigms like, or, or technology? I'm not actually, I, I, the old paradigms aren't wrong. These are evolutions of of the interconnectivity of systems, right? The, the, the thing that event buses miss is that, or buses miss is that they're really designed for passing messages between parties that are expecting to get messages. Right. right. 
and server the, the serverless is actually designed for transformation on event action. I mean, I guess you could have a serverless component that was just typing data back and forth between things. So you could you could do use it as a message bus or an interconnection, some type of interconnection glue. Um, and then it did nothing but but be the intermediary between two systems and, and let you create a effectively a data pipe. Um, I, I, think not, another aspect I, is I, I see there's there's API shimming platforms, API orchestration platforms that are not considered serverless that are seen in this conversation very overlap. I would agree with you. And I think also maybe maybe it would be helpful to level set on the definition of serverless, which seems to be Mm, different schools of thought in different groups. Yeah, that was one of the things that interesting that we identified in the topics for this call, which was, you know, API or, you know, streamable components for serverless, where you're actually building a data stream as opposed to event-driven or ephemeral work. Um, well, I think streaming is going to be a big deal this year and next mm -hmm. for two reasons. One, you cannot rely on historical data for predictive analytics any longer because you are out of date within a matter of milliseconds in some industries and weeks to months in others. And real-time and streamability is why couldn't you stream a data and the API in the same, for lack of a better word, container. Mm -hmm. Build your API on the fly. I, we, we have a lot of systems that aren't doing or can't do, or don't, we don't want to do any analysis of the data stream. So the idea that I would have an intermediary to subscribe to a data stream and, and do an analysis on it seems very real. Um, Joanne, you you really opened this this can of worms to me of that that they're going to have all of that we might have many different event processors here. Yeah, so you you might have a system that says, "Oh, I need to be able to subscribe to streams to build digital twins or to do safety analytics," and our expectation would be not that there's a single system, a hub doing that, but that the sensors actually supply, oh yeah, I can support five streams coming off of my systems. Um, and one of those systems you might throw, you know, you might add in is, hey, this is my, you know, stream analysis, event modeling, or my digital twins. Like they could, they could actually be multiple systems here. Not yes. that we're, we're gonna have a right. well, event hub. Yeah. If, if you're talking about composability, Let's talk about composability of the data set that you're operating on. And what you're overlaying on it is a, it are very different models. The reason you build a model for a digital twin is, is purposeful and they, they, they are distinct from one another. So there's, there's every reason to say you, if you want to talk about multi-sources have to come into a some a form of schemaless data store of some sort and that schemaless data store is more likely than not going to be some sort of federated or composed abstraction that you get and use for your for your digital twin for your analytics whether your analytics are going to be um, predictive or whether you're going to use them with a model that says I have prescriptive, a prescriptive uh, mission here, which is to watch for a particular kind of event and make uh, rapid changes to the, um, to, the system that I'm monitoring or that I'm that I'm observing. So there's a 
there's an observability and you're observing, you know, there's, <laughs> there's observability of the whatever system you're you've instrumented and then there's observability of the data that you've collected and the forms of data that you're you're receiving and and bringing in under some sort of composable um formula and there's a there's an overlying there's an overlay model. There's a model that you have that is basically going to be defined by the the objective of the twin of the the digital twin because everybody's everybody's use of this technology is going to be quite distinct. It's going to be distinct from industry to industry, as you both mentioned. But it's going to be um, it's going to be pro- very often. It's going to be problem specific, and I think your your notion, Rob, of a um, truly a single source of truth, unless unless you could come up with the, the idea of a you know a, a message bus that itself is a is the data is the the ultimate data source and it's got all of the different you know uh channels and so forth and it actually persists data which is kind of a mind boggle but uh, you know the and it's you know there are people who have done things like that in limited form i can't imagine doing that for you know a, an entire company or or a, a, a long-term long-term challenge of using a, a digital twin or any kind of a control control system so I, I you would like to be able to say that uh, anything that is feeding data into this morass has the ability to if you want to think of it as a data bill of materials, uh, not a software, not not a not an S bomb, like but it's a data bomb. It's a you know this is what you know. It's a it's you know the way we we started working with APIs with Swagger and and self description. We're talking about something equivalent with data. This is this is what's in this is this is a manifest, and this is what's you know what you're going to find inside the data or the data stream that I supply you, and now you get now you get to you know make use of that. We we definitely need it because if you patch the software and they change the data bomb, you have to right you you're the, the thing the thing that's making my head explode on this um, is I'm very split brain. I I feel like oh yeah we should not expect to have a single hub for data streaming and stuff like that. That that's not a realistic design. Yeah. And that individual applications, like like if applications were well-designed, to my original point about source of truth, were well-designed to receive or transmit their event date data in a, you know, API-driven way, then then you you could just connect things together and things would be great, right? This composability and the interconnectedness. And if you did that, you won't need to centralize it into a single hub so everybody's using the same APIs. And I that makes I, I like that. It feels democratic, it feels innovative, it feels like you know, pragmatic, like, oh, I, I can just add in a new system. I don't have to get well, permission it, it, from the it feels built hub. for purpose. But it also feels like now I'm going to have device. I'm, my 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 many to many network problem is going to be incredibly complex, right? Which we've talked about this in the past. So you know, I take a sensor, I patch the firmware on a sensor. The sensor changes its stream format, right? Back to your data bomb, and. Now all the subscribers of that sensor have to be able to accommodate whatever that updated stream was, right? And that, and you might not even know who all the consumers of that data stream are, because it it could just be a passive collection. And right. so we've got this mesh of 
data sources and sinks because we've we don't have a centralized processing hub that strikes me as incredibly hard to um, maintain and and you're going to you're going to run into the the whole notion of versioned versioned data yeah. and maintaining you know kind of for how long you re, you you um, support prior prior data prior data schemas formats what have you it's it's a it's a you know it's analogous to what we've had to do with rapidly changing code rapidly changing packages that we use for the construction of applications only multiplied by some incredible complexity and, and numerical factor that just you know it does boggle the mind but there is a there's a there's a part of this that basically has to say i have you know backward compatibility and part of the issue of the data bomb and the use of the data bomb is exactly for that purpose but i have a question yeah. and and oh, just me one? <laughs> well 12 okay rich but i'm only asking the one at a time it's a composite it's composite question yeah no i'm um, going to make it as simple as possible why would you change the data stream format? What is the event that no, would trigger I, I you? I don't think we're talking about changing the format unless you're Well, using that's what Rob said. I was, I, I was, no. So, so, yeah, no, I could, I could see that um, you added re additional resolution. You, um, <laughs> you, you know, I could see you. I was using a timestamp format that maybe stored the date as an int instead of a string. <laughs> I ran out of digits, right? I, I could see, you know, uh, I was sending more sensitive data. I wanted to add fields. The most common thing I would see is that I'm adding more fields or I'm adding additional carrier data. So you're talking about, you're talking about schema. Not format. Not, you're not talking about message format, are you? Uh, maybe I, I don't understand why to distinguish those things. Um, well, because the addition of a field in a schema shouldn't change the format in which a message is delivered. I could like, see, like I went talking to, about this. It, it, you have a syntax by which, you know, somebody adds correct. something to, to the data and you don't recognize it. It's something new. Um, you know, you throw it up, you, you throw it in the bit bucket, mm -hmm. but it still allows you to continue to use the remainder of what's being transmitted because it it adheres to the syntax. Yeah, it, like I mean, I, I couldn't imagine you change suddenly changing from um, a very distinctive set of syntax that everybody has agreed to and is using on a regular basis, and suddenly you're changing that. It's it would be like you know, olden times, oh, instead of using a RosettaNet pip, I'm going to rewrite this as an OAG bot. Like, I spent years doing that. I don't want to do it again. To me, the, the ability of, of and I'm going to make this a two-part answer, composability says, we'll take the, you know, vanilla is vanilla, and now it's not suddenly chocolate, although vanilla would enhance the chocolate. Um, that's for the composability side and yeah. with respect to syntax and format. The streamability comes down to, uh, okay, I could, I, I immediately went to, you're adding new cryptographic whatever for security to yeah. that stream and that would cause everybody a bunch of heartache and headache. That will. But right. in, in, in the guise of my understanding of serverless, um, I don't see that. I. It's a yeah, stream, and, and and those things might not be bad. You're right, and it it could be right. A security patch comes in, and all of a sudden, I'm sending everything encrypted, and I can't. I, you know, the system doesn't send it in the old format. Those are those are much more disruptive. 
but right. they're they're necessary disruptive. Um, you know, the challenge you can definitely get into a, a case where a system you depend on is subscribed to a data feed that you you can't modify the way that subscription works, or you haven't like we. I mean, we've covered this without without solutions. <laughs> um, this cascading uh, update problem, right? Um, which I think serverless is, and this has been my objective objection to the serverless work we've done, is it's incredibly hard to, to troubleshoot and create time variant serverless solutions. I'm sorry, hard to create time variant. So, so here's here's what the work. So we 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 built some serverless tech. We actually unwound it for these reasons. Um. And we were using Lambda. And what would happen is if we fix the database or change the database, then that Lambda has to be built in a way that it respects both databases as a fork that says, oh, this model is this schema now and it's that schema you know, in, in, another, in another iteration. Um, but it was incredibly hard to troubleshoot that happening. Because I, the, I think what you're trying to get to is like we need a schema change shock absorp absorption layer, which is an yeah, age old problem. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's right. One 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 fairly radical you know, approach to that is you know everything becomes a you know a key value pair, and what you're really operating on is metadata that that assembles it in accordance with a particular um, data bomb, or with a, or matching a data bomb to the you know digital twin model, there is an there is an intermediary. There's an abstraction layer, or a there's a there's a shim in there, and that's what you're using metadata for. And you're seeing more of that being used in the modern data stack exactly, which is throw everything into into the into the data store from different sources as long as you can kind of keep track of the source you know distinguish the source identify the source there are certain things that you know are kind of required at the outset and everything else becomes you know and is is used on the basis is done with a a metadata layer not multiple metadata layers but you know you, you get into a, a whole a whole long discussion there the point being what you're actually operating on for your analytics for your uh reverse elt packaging it up and sending data to an operational data store or sending it up to a an analyst for uh historical analysis for predictive work. It, so it, it, makes, it makes sense to me. It's, I, I'm laughing because what you're describing to me is much more about digital twinning. Yes. We, yes. Where we started. <laughs> and the, yes. this the is, convergence this. between these two topics is, is, uh, is complete uh, from that perspective. Yeah, I, I, think, cool. I think, <laughs> you know, you come to, you come, I, 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 I came to this conclusion some long time ago, but you know, about the only only place I see it actually working, not in exactly in the context we're talking about, but if you've spent any time using uh, data log uh, kinds of uh, databases where yeah. you literally can, you know, take, you know, uh, rather atomic pieces of, of, of data there, they're effectively key value pairs and construct, you know, it's kind of like the Turing machine, the Turing machine for, for data sets. And, and it works, it does actually work. And if you can, you know, if you can figure out or come to some, some conclusions about or agreements about this notion of a data bomb, then you could arguably make it work in a distributed, multi-domain, multi-tenant environment. 
but that's a, those are big those are big challenges but yeah. you know this idea sorry i just wanted to interject this idea of shims in a you know api shimming and the use of met metadata is prompting um and i was reading a reddit thread on this the other day uh prompting the idea of reintroducing rules engines into serverless design rules engines as opposed rules. to instead of having the ability of you know any kind of composition or any kind of composability that you would actually use metadata create a rules engine and that rules engine would then dictate without you going from the data log side. So the rules engine would, there, there's some CDNs that are looking at doing this now because if they change the way they distribute the content to make it less uh, time consuming or faster for the consumer to use and to ingest an API or ingest content, then they can sort of um, use rules in the metadata to slim down each of the stream sizes to um, uh, oh, you know oh, overcome oh, oh, oh. malicious those are, those code. So transforms. Are you saying that the rules might might be applied to an API, for example, and then that would change the nature of a of a data stream that's being published out? Correct. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And that that rule. Well, that yeah. rules engine addresses the issue that you were talking about with the logs, right? Instead of going from the log and keep pair of values back up to compose something, go, you know, create the rules engine that would give you that flexibility. Rules engine. I'm, a I'm, rules I'm, engine I'm, on a CDN. Yeah. I I think I have to. I, I'm not quite getting to, I, I may have a, a, a very arcane or very provincial idea of when to apply rules engines, but so I'll, I'll hold off on that one, but I, I got to jump folks. So yeah, we'll keep going. I, I'm, I'm certain this topic is not dead. Yeah, just, just a, a, a parting thought, like a, a food, yeah. food for thought, like for next term or something, to, something to think over the, the, there's a rise of pre-trained, um, ML models, right? The C3AI and other others, they need the data in certain format and all that stuff. So to to feed it, so they 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 have the the data sort of models trained um, AI, if you will, pre-trained AI models uh, for certain domains, like for detecting fraud in mm -hmm. e-commerce or credit card industry. Mm -hmm. Or, or finding sort of flaws in the factory floor, stuff like that. So they, they have that right now. They're building it, and they, I think it's worth looking into that. Like what what is the input they're looking at, and then if they are doing any shimming, or I'm looking here that uh, sort of adapter patterns and or you know um, tonking stuff like that. Yeah. I'll, I added well, it to the list. Yeah. We'll, we'll when you here. do. Please, mm -hmm. please also add bias in modeling and the overuse <laughs> of certain models. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, mm -hmm. another yeah, kind so, of worms. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever model you use, whatever rules you establish in your rules engine. Exactly. Uh, you're, you're, you know, to the degree it's being trained on historical data, which itself is being captured in a biased fashion or has either explicit or implicit biases and explicit biases are based on this is my this is why I'm building the model I need to optimize some some aspect right. I need to eliminate some aspect I'm explicit about the bias here I'm telling you know the world in this case I don't care about <laughs> anything but <laughs> I mean I <laughs> I, on, on the philosophy side, I usually say that without bias, there's no decision. There's no decision without a bias. Zero. Mm. Just. Well, ooh, I'll leave you guys. Again. Uh, all right. All right. We need to wrap. We, that, that one. <laughs> that one I got we definitions of bias. We're going to let that one sit. All right. All right, everybody. Guys.
Have a nice day. Wow. That conversation went in so many interesting places and kept coming back to this idea that the schema of the data, the, the models that we use are hyper critical to make things work. I know we are going to keep going back about this. Uh, it is a key topic for AI, edge, uh, serverless, uh, really the whole way uh, cloud is being designed and even some of the new concepts surfacing around Web3. All of that will be discussed at the Cloud 2030. Please join us. Uh, we want to hear your voice in these discussions too. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently. Because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know, laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.